Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and it's um, chapter 11, and we're going to start with verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, now you, Pharisee, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. I don't know if uh, you've noticed this before. I'm sure some of you have. Um, but it was striking to me even this morning as I was reflecting on this, this message uh, and all week long as I reflected on this passage. The things that happen here in our gathering um, are very dangerous things. If you think about it, people could drift their way into this, this room just from off the street um, or maybe children growing up within, within families in, in this church. And what could happen over time as they join with us, as we sing and we pray, uh, as we uh, affirm members saying, yes, we believe that you're showing evidence that you're a Christian, or we discipline members saying we can't affirm any longer based on the testimony of your lifestyle that you're a Christian any longer, or maybe it's they join us in our DCs and we're confessing sin and we're studying God's Word. Perhaps in the midst of them joining in on all of this, something very dangerous could happen. Maybe they could begin to pick up some behaviors. Maybe they, they learn to bow their head at a certain time, and uh, they learn to pray in a certain way. They learn to stand up and sit down with us. 
Perhaps they begin to pick up lingo with us, that they learn the right things to say at just the right times to get the oohs and the ahs and the mmms whenever they pray. Perhaps they could even begin to believe that they're fooling other people around them, that they've earned acceptance and they're doing the right things to get people's approval. Perhaps it's gone so far that they've even fooled themselves, that they believe that they belong to the Christian community. Perhaps it's gone even so far that they've come to believe that they're fooling God, that God doesn't see the state of their hearts, and that based on the works that they're performing, maybe God will accept them. Well, I say all of that because as you just heard in the passage that was just read, this is a pretty intense and serious passage. Jesus confronts a couple of different groups of people, and while he's confronting groups of people that were unique to 2,000 years ago, ago, Pharisees, scribes, or otherwise known as lawyers, they're still with us today. Hypocrites, the Pharisees, people who put on appearance of being one thing, but in reality are another thing, or self-righteous, People are putting their hope and their confidence in what they can accomplish with their own hands, what they accomplish with their own mouths. Jesus is going to confront, as we've just read, these groups of people. And so we have to recognize that there's a few dangers as we come to a passage like this. Number one, we're in danger of thinking that this passage is irrelevant to us. We're in danger of thinking that because he's referring to past things like uh, tithing of of garden herbs and strange foreign practices, we're we're in danger of thinking that, oh, well, this passage was for this group of people 2,000 years ago. This is a nice history lesson today. We're also in that we have another danger. We have a danger of coming to a passage like this and misapplying and misappropriating it. We need to recognize who Jesus is confronting here. He's not confronting Christians. He's confronting non-believers, Pharisees and lawyers, hypocrites and self-righteous. These people are fundamentally not Christians because they're seeking to gain acceptance among people and acceptance before God by the works of their own hands and by the appearance that they put on a display for others to see. These are not Christians that Jesus is giving the scathing rebuke to. But I think the third danger is that after I've just said that second point, that uh, it's easy to misappropriate and misapply this, that us as Christians, believers in this room, we might begin to believe that this passage is irrelevant for us. Well, that's not true either. Perhaps there are remnants Uh, Some of us in this room were self-righteous and hypocrites before we came to Christ, but perhaps there are remnants of the root problem that's there. It's been dealt with, it's been given its final blow, but perhaps there's, there's sin areas in our life that we need to confront, and by God's word today, we can have it confronted in our hearts. But really what this passage is supposed to do for Christians is to cause us to rejoice. I don't know how we get from this scathing rebuke to rejoicing, but maybe I can show it to you today. So before we jump into our passage, let's set up this passage here um, from the book of Luke. So you remember over the last couple of weeks, we've been starting since Luke 9.51. We've been walking with Jesus as he heads up toward Jerusalem. 
He's heading there, and he obviously knows that he's going to die, that he's going to be rejected, persecuted, and ultimately killed. So last week, as we're heading up to Jerusalem with Jesus, Jesus uh, casts out a demon, and people begin to respond to it. Some people respond to it saying, where's this guy get his power from? Like, who gave him authority to start casting out demons? Maybe his authority is coming from the prince of demons. Maybe this big display of casting out demons is actually demonic. While other people uh, were beginning to ask for more signs. They've seen a lot of signs, but they want more and more and more, and they're never satisfied. They'll never come to the conviction and the conclusion that this is a true messenger from God that I must submit my life to. We saw that last week. If you take a look back just real quick, look at verse 32 of chapter 11. This is a passage that previews what we're about to see. That verse says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is Jesus talking about? He's saying when Jonah came, that prophet of old, Whenever he came to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, he came with uh, a, a scathing rebuke, a word of condemnation upon the Ninevites. He said, woe to you, you're condemned by God, destruction is coming on you. Well, that's not a very uplifting message, not one filled with much compassion or kindness. And we find out later in the story that Jonah really had zero compassion at all for the Ninevites. He was sitting back, eating popcorn, waiting for God's judgment to fall, and it never did. And that was the very reason why he never wanted to preach to them in the first place. He wanted condemnation to come upon them, but God is a merciful God, and he delights in in showing compassion to those who repent. And so the Ninevites repent, Jonah gets angry, the Lord relents. Well, this passage here in verse 32 says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the resurrection day and condemn the people right there before Jesus. And why is that? Because the people hearing Jesus' scathing condemnation, even though he comes with a much better message, and even though he comes with a heart full of compassion, they refuse to repent at his message. And so these People outside of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, they'll stand up and they'll condemn these contemporaries of Jesus. Well, that passage right there in in verse 32, that previews what we're about to see. As Jesus levels this serious condemnation of these these hypocrites and these self-righteous people, we're going to see that in the end, they walk away as though they never heard anything. And so for us, What do we do with a passage like this? Well, I think what's happening here in this passage, Jesus is is condemning and pronouncing God's judgment. That's what that word woe, we're going to see that word again and again, woe. It's a word of condemnation, and it's a word of warning. It shows grief because God's destruction is going to come. Jesus says woe seven times. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pronouncing God's condemnation that perhaps, perhaps somebody might hear it and repent. And so what do we do with this passage? 
Well, today, the reason we're studying this passage is that we're going to, I'm praying that three things happen, that God, through this passage, will condemn hypocrites in this room, that God will condemn self-righteous people in this room, and by God's grace, hypocrites would repent, self-righteous people would repent, and third, that Christians would rejoice. So let's jump into this passage. What we're going to see are Jesus pronounced seven condemnations upon hypocrites and the self-righteous. And the first condemnations we're going to see is Jesus condemns hypocrites in chapter 11, 39 through 44. Jesus condemns hypocrites in these verses. We're going to see four condemnations given to the hypocrites. And first, let's look at verses 39 through 41. Jesus condemns hypocrites because they care more about external purity than internal purity. That's what we're going to see in verses 39 through 41. Jesus will condemn hypocrites because they care more about external purity than internal purity. Look with me at verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. We jump straight to Jesus' first woe there, but uh, we, we miss the context. What's happening here? Jesus is continuing on his journey. He's speaking to a large crowd of people, and in verse 37, a Pharisee asks him to come in. So we're at another dinner party. We've been at a lot of those. Jesus seems to eat a lot of food in the book of Luke. So in verse 38, as Jesus comes in to eat this meal, an ordinary meal, the Pharisee is astonished at something Jesus fails to do. It says there in verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, before we begin to think that Jesus is uh, some kind of gross hippie who never washes his hands or washes himself, this is not so much about personal cleanliness or hygiene as it is about ritual purity. In other words, the Pharisees were taking Old Testament passages that talked about ritual cleanliness, about how to be clean before God, And they extended it out from being in the temple or performing religious rites. They extended it all the way out into the home. That before you take an ordinary meal, there's a certain way you need to wash your hands and a certain ritual that you need to perform so that you can take this this meal with uh, with cleanness, with ritual cleanness. The problem is that was never actually levied in the Old Testament, not in that way. What the Pharisees were doing is, in their their desire to take the Old Testament seriously, their desire to obey it to the nth degree, they were taking applications and leveling those out as God's law. They were were experts in the law and experts in the oral law, and so now they're seeking to apply that to everyday life in this this way. But they're, they're leveling against Jesus something God never actually commanded 
in the Old Testament for a meal like this. So, so look here. I want you to watch these movements. This is the issue that Jesus, is, Jesus takes in this particular woe. We're going to see this movement from outside to inside. What Jesus is showing is that the Pharisees are super concerned about these external washings, but they're not paying attention to the more important internal washing that has to take place. So watch these movements. Look at verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. So look where their focus is. This is where their priority is. They're looking at the outside of the cup, but look what he says. But inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. He, he wastes no time. You're so concerned about making sure that you're ritually clean, that you're washed and, and you're, you're obeying all of these commands, you're, you're obeying all the traditions of the elders, but in all of your focusing on washing cups and dishes, you failed to do the more important thing of making sure that you had an inner character that's pure before God. It says, inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Look at verse 40, he continues. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Again, you're washing your hands. Yes, God made your hands. He cares. He cares about what you do every day. But look, you're paying attention in order to submit to God. You want to submit to God even in these external things but you have failed to, to submit the internal reality of your heart. He made your hands, but he also made your heart. And you have no consideration of making sure your heart is clean before him. He says it again here in verse 41. Here's the beautiful thing. Jesus points out the problem, but he doesn't leave them there. Everyone hates when someone critiques, but they don't give any solution. Jesus doesn't do that. He shows them the problem, but he gives the corrective in verse 41. Instead of that, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So he, we've seen the movement. You're focused on the outside, but you failed to pay attention to the inside. He says, give to God, offer to God as charity or as benevolence, as a thanksgiving offering to him. Offer the inside. Offer what is within in purity, and then everything else after that will take care of itself. We know that that's true because of passages like Mark chapter 7, verses 15, 20, and 23. Go ahead and turn there with me really quick. We won't we'll try not to do this too much today, but this is going to be helpful. What Jesus does in Mark 7 is he turns our focus to the kind of purity that God is looking for. This is the kind of purity that God requires of people. This is what he's after. So again, we're, we're turning to Mark chapter 7, verse 15, 20 through 23. This is going to help us understand the, the blunder that these Pharisees have made. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person by going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Look at verse 20. And he, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, 
Out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. As you turn back to to Luke chapter 11, just recognize this is Jesus' ultimate problem with these Pharisees in this woe. They're they're paying attention to all these external matters when in reality, cleanliness isn't defined about doing these ritual external practices. Cleanliness, purity, is a matter of the heart. All of the things that are actually unclean before God come from unclean, impure hearts. And so what we need to do is submit our impure, unclean hearts before a living God and say, Lord, would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? Would you change me? Jesus' standard in this way, it seems like to all of the, the people at that day that the Pharisees are really religious, that their standards are really high, but in reality, Jesus says, no, your bar is too low. Your bar is here at the external matters. God's bar is with the internal matters. Jesus, his righteousness exceeds, his demands exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, but not because he he makes you be precise about your ritual performance on a day-in, day-out basis, but because he expects you to go deeper to where it all begins at the source of your heart. The second condemnation that Jesus lays upon hypocrites is found in verse 42. And it's that Jesus condemns hypocrites because they have their priorities out of order. Because they have their priorities out of order. Look at verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. This this woe gets at the matter of priorities. We all know what priorities are. Priorities are what you give the the lion's share of your attention to. Priorities are what you emphasize. They're what you make time for. And Jesus is saying to, to these Pharisees, your priorities are all out of whack. He says this. He says, you prioritize your tithing. You tithe mint and rue, and every herb. Look, what he's saying in this passage is that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that you take the, the, this law in the Old Testament about tithing and you take it all the way down to your produce, even to your herbs. That's not bad. The problem is, is their priority. All their focus, the lion's share of their attention, they've put all of their focus on something like tithing. What's the problem with that? The problem is that we realize this in our own lives. We give priorities to some things, but because we are limited beings, we can't give equal weight and attention to everything. So something has to go. So as they put all their focus and attention on tithing herbs, what has to go? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 42, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. That's a problem, isn't it? If you've gotten so focused on minutia, 
like tithing and, and doing right and wrong, trying to answer these ethical questions, and that's where all your attention and focus is, that you've neglected justice and the love of God, something is out of order. So what would this have looked like for them, right? We're like, okay, how did they do that, justice and the love of God? Well, a couple of uh, specific instances come to mind. Think back to Luke chapter 7. Don't turn there, but just remember what happened there. There was this one particular dinner party. Again, Jesus, party animal, going and eating a lot of food. Uh, probably shouldn't have said party animal. That doesn't really, that's not the right connotation. But he's eating with these Pharisees. He's been welcomed in again. And who shows up? Oh, a sinful woman. She's come with her alabaster jar. She's come. She's wet Jesus' feet with her tears. She's wiping his feet with her hair. Her, she is just in gratitude devoting herself to him. She's weeping over the forgiveness of her sins. And what is the Pharisee doing? He's sitting off to the side, and he's just blown out of his mind that Jesus would let a sinful woman touch his feet that Jesus would let a sinful woman even be in the room. And Jesus answers him and he says, why do you think this woman's doing this? You haven't washed my feet. You haven't, you haven't given me the honorary kiss as I stepped in. Why is she doing this? It's because she loves the one who has forgiven her sins. But you, you don't think you have many sins, so you love little. That's one example of the way Pharisees neglect the love of God. They don't recognize any need for forgiveness of sins, and so they have no love to the one who might forgive them. But what about justice? How do they neglect justice? Well, Mark chapter 7 that we were just in, when Jesus was talking about what defiles a person, that was coming right after one way that they neglect justice. They neglect doing right to other people. What were they doing? Uh, the, the, there was a, a law in the Old Testament, you know it well, it's one of the more famous laws in uh, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, okay, that's important. You don't do that if you speak against or you rebel against your father and mother, you're liable to stoning, very serious. Well, they had a, a way of dealing with this particular command. There is an expectation that when your parents get older, you take care of them, that you, you, you use your property, you use your money, you take care of your parents when they're in need. Well, when this expectation was upon the Pharisees, one thing that they would do is they would say, oh, I can't give this over to you. I can't take care of you. Why? Because I've given these possessions over to God. I've, I've donated them. I've pledged them to charity. And Jesus says, oh, that's interesting. What a fine way you have of neglecting God's command to honor your father and mother so that you can love God. That's injustice. And so these are just a couple of examples of ways that uh, Pharisees neglected justice and the love of God. And so what does he say? Look at verse 42. What are they supposed to do? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, take care of your priorities first. Love of God and justice toward people. And yeah, after that, pay attention to your garden herbs. Get first things first. That was their mistake. Let's look at the third one. Jesus condemns hypocrites because they have sinful motives. Look at verse 43. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplace, greetings in the marketplaces. Sadly, this is far too easy for us to understand. We know exactly what the rebuke is. The third rebuke is that they, he condemns hypocrites because they have sinful motives. Matthew 23, 5, Jesus says, Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. He says this very similar things in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, don't pray like the Pharisees. Don't give like the Pharisees. Don't fast like the Pharisees. Why? Because they pray loud so that people will hear them. They pray publicly so that people will see them. They give where they clang the money so that people will hear their big offering. They fast and disfigure their faces so that people will notice that they're, they're so sacrificial and pious in their devotion to God. This is in total uh, opposition to what Jesus expected of his disciples. Jesus, as a very first instruction, because of what they'd seen the Pharisees do, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others. And this is why we've labeled this whole section about Jesus condemning hypocrites. Hypocrites, this, this word referred to these people who would act uh, in plays in the first century. Uh, they would put on masks so that they can play different roles. They can come into one scene and be one person. They can come into another scene and be another person. And Jesus says, Pharisees, you're hypocrites because you, you have this mask that you want people to see your appearance you want people to think that you're one thing, and what did they want? They wanted people to think through all of their religious performance that they were pious and devoted to God. But they're hypocrites because the reality behind the mask is something totally different. They weren't worried about lifting up praises to God. They weren't worried about devoting their lives to Him. What was driving them, what was motivating them, was that they would be seen by other people. And you see the result of that in, in verse 43. It says that they got best, the best seats in the synagogues and they got greetings in the marketplaces. This tells us what they were loving, what they delighted in. And this should serve as a warning to us. As we look at our religious devotion, as we look at the way we pray and sing, this should ask us, why am I doing this? What is my ultimate delight? What am I longing to get in the end after this is over? And this is the problem with the Pharisees. They, they were delighting in the attention they would get from other people, the preferential treatment that they would get, the respect and admiration. And this is why this is so dangerous for us. We're in a community and a culture that celebrates religiosity. We can't see what's going on on the other side we can't see behind the mask. All we see is the prayers. All we see are the gifts. All we see is the working. And it's dangerous because people can learn to play the game, but in reality, there's something different going on behind the mask. And so the question then for us to evaluate is, what are we looking for? What's driving us? What's motivating? What are we going to delight in at the end of the day when all the working is over? The hope for the Pharisees was that through all of this, they might fool other people around them to thinking they're religious. And even they got to the point where they fooled themselves 
to think that this was all actually about God. But what they could never do is fool God. And that's why Jesus was the one who was able to bring this rebuke. So let's see this final condemnation of the hypocrites. Jesus condemns hypocrites because their sins go unnoticed. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is the fourth condemnation. He condemns them because their sins go unnoticed. This is helpful for us to know why they would mark graves in the first place, in the first century. It's not so much about a monument, like, you know, maybe we have an epitaph or something written on a gravestone today. One of the reasons, perhaps for beautification, but especially to mark out where a grave is so that people don't touch it, so that people don't accidentally touch it. Because what happens according to Numbers 19, if you touch a dead man's bone or even a dead man's grave, is that you're unclean for an entire week. You can't can't participate in what is going on in offering sacrifices and in the, the religious community. And so a marked grave would serve to help people know that it needed to be avoided, that you would walk around it. But what Jesus calls the Pharisees are unmarked graves. Unmarked. Does anybody see the problem there? What's the problem with an unmarked grave? It's in danger of defiling and causing other people to become unclean because they can't see it. They don't know it's there. They're, they're, like he said, able to just walk right over it and touch it and not even know. And that was what was going on with the Pharisees. People are seeing this hypocritical performance and people think these are religious people. We need to go to them to get our answers. We need to follow in their example when in reality... Those are the last people they needed to be following, the last people to listen to, because in reality, what's going on beneath the surface is that there's a a dead stench. There's rotting flesh. There's dead man's bones. They're going to make you unclean. And that's the irony of it. In all of their fixation on external cleanliness, they're actually unclean within and even making other people unclean. And Jesus points out what no one else could see until John the Baptist came and Jesus, it doesn't seem, it seems like maybe some other people saw this, but they leveled this rebuke in a prophetic way. Whoa, God's condemnation is coming upon you because what you're trying to be on the outside is nothing like what's going on on the inside. And so this is scary for us. As we look at this this condemnation against hypocrites, this hits really close to home. Because for some of us, that's what a lot of our lives amount to. And it's a particular danger for those of us who grow up in this culture or who drift our way in, is that we learn to do what other people would like, what other people think make you holy and make you acceptable before God, when in reality, God's not fooled by all of this external work. God knows the condition of the heart. If we're going to be right before him, we need a heart that is pure and clean. And that can't be done by putting on a performance. Let's look at this uh, second section here. Jesus is going to pronounce three condemnations upon the self-righteous. 
He's going to pronounce three condemnations upon the self-righteous. And we'll see the first one in verse 46. Jesus condemns the self-righteous because they demand from others what they excuse in themselves. The first condemnation is that they, he condemns them because they demand from others what they excuse in themselves. Look at verse 46, or sorry, verse 45. So verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Okay, great. You just drew attention to yourself. Good job, lawyer. Here we go. Verse 46. And he said, woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This points out to us, uh, I think it's helpful for us to think about the day in which we live. We live in a relativistic age. What's a common mantra in the age and culture we live in? What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. No one can really lay their morals or their ethics upon anyone else. Lawyers didn't really live by that, nor should they. So as they're determining from the Old Testament law, they're experts in both the law and they're experts in uh, the oral law, the traditions of the elders. They're, they're making decisions about what God requires. And as they make those decisions, they're levying those things upon other people. This is right, this is wrong, not just for me, but for you also. Jesus says in all of their teaching, and even in their lifestyle, what they're actually doing is loading up burdens upon people. That's what he says. You load people with burdens hard to bear. It seems like the picture here is that of a donkey. You're saddling up this beast of burden. You're treating people like that, saddling them up with all of these expectations. As though, there wasn't, as though there's not enough expectations from God, although the standard is not already unreachable for any man, you add to it and you heap up upon it. Well, what's the problem even further? You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. As they're heaping up all of these expectations, adding to the Old Testament, adding to God's commands, they're failing at the enterprise themselves. They're totally unable to, to, to they're, not even, they're not willing to come alongside someone to help, and they're unwilling themselves to lift it. No man can bear the kind of burden that they're trying to lay upon someone. In, in Acts chapter 15, when the church is trying to grapple with how to, how to understand the Old Testament for Christians, in Acts 15, they're trying to understand, what do we do with all of these Old Testament commands for Gentiles? Are they supposed to be circumcised and to follow the letter of the law? They come to the conclusion that no. And, and this, is what, this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 15. He says, brothers, we are about to place a yoke, this, this burden, we're going to place a yoke on the necks of the disciples that we and our fathers have never been able to bear. No one has ever been able to satisfy the righteousness require the righteous requirements of a holy God by performing to the letter of the law. They're laying it upon other people, but they themselves are unwilling to help at all. No man 
can meet God's expectations and make themselves acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. Self-righteous people can't even maintain the expectations they have on themselves, let alone the expectations God might have on them. And so Jesus condemns the self-righteous. The second reason he condemns the self-righteous is because they persecute and kill God's messengers. Jesus condemns the self-righteous because they persecute and kill God's messengers. This is a very large section, so hang with me. Look at verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Very large section, and there's way too many details for us to hit everything. But we need to recognize that the main condemnation Jesus is laying upon these self-righteous lawyers is that he's condemning them because they persecute and kill God's messengers. He's going to say this in basically two ways. The first way is he's going to focus on them building the tombs of the prophets who were murdered. What's the problem with that? That sounds like a good thing, and probably, knowing these self-righteous lawyers, they're probably doing that to show their piety. And even in other places in the New Testament, they're building these, and they're saying, if we were alive in the time of our fathers, there's no way we would have killed the prophets. There's no way we would have had God send a messenger to us, and then we come out and attack and kill him. There's no way we would have joined them in that. But Jesus says, actually... As you're calling these guys your fathers, look at verse 48, you are witnesses, you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, you build their tombs. He's saying, as you call these ancestors who murdered the prophets your fathers, you're saying that you're descendants of them. You're saying that you've probably taken on some of their character. You're saying we're sons of our fathers. But more than just being witnesses of that, they're, they're saying, we're taking responsibility for the mess of our fathers. Does that make sense? Our fathers wronged God and, and killed God's messengers. Now we're going to come in behind our fathers and clean up their mess. Jesus is saying, you're witnesses against yourselves. You're following right in to their, their footsteps. And even worse, that's the first part, They're they're building these tombs for these murdered prophets. But the worst part, they're about to fall right in line and do the exact same things. That's what he's saying whenever he says in verse 49, Therefore the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Jesus is saying, God determined to send me. God is determined to send me. He's determined to send these apostles that I'm going to send out from me. And God in his wisdom knows that you are about to do just what your fathers did. 
You're about to kill these messengers, these apostles of mine. You're about to kill me, the ultimate prophet that all the prophets have been leading up to and are ultimately culminated in. You're about to kill the ultimate prophet in me. Jesus foretells that in this passage. And so because he knows they're about to kill him, he says, because you killed the ultimate culmination of all the prophets, God is going to hold you responsible for the whole line of them. He is going to require judgment from you. He will judge you because you've cleaned up the messes of your fathers and you're acting in just the same way. The main thing he's saying here is, have you learned nothing? Have you learned nothing? All these prophets have come and people killed them. And now I've come, the culminating prophet, and you're going to kill me. Why did they kill them? This is the same problem throughout all of their their history. It's the same problem with these self-righteous lawyers. The problem is they did not believe that the prophet's message was true. The prophet would come and say, you're not right before God. You're, You're worshiping idols. You're doing injustice. You've neglected love for God. And the people say, no way. We're devoted. We're pious. We're, 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 we're obeying the commands. There's no way what you're saying is true. These false prophets come along. God's pleased with you. There's no way these guys are right. Keep doing what you're doing. They kill God's prophets and listen to the false prophets. It happened all throughout. And what is the core issue? Self-righteousness. If we think We are right before God by the works of our hands. When someone comes along and tells us, you're not right. You have sin before a holy God. You're unacceptable before God. He's going to destroy you. There's coming a day of judgment and of reckoning. If we think we're right, if we think we're acceptable to God, perhaps we might even be found ourselves persecuting, rejecting, and killing God's messengers. And so I ask you, might seem a little bit far off. You're like, well, I don't really think I'm about to kill anybody or persecute anybody. When someone approaches you with sin, what's your defense? What's your reaction? Are you on the attack? Are you ready to persecute? Are you coming in defense? Do you have a justification? I've done this and this and this. I've done this and this and this. There's no way. That's the same thing that self-righteous lawyers were doing. It's the same thing that caused those those people to kill the Old Testament prophets. And even we might be falling in in their footsteps. Look at this final condemnation. Jesus condemns the self-righteous because they perpetuate unbelief. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. It's helpful for us to recognize what's going on here with this word key. Key is our key word. We need to understand the word key. What does a key do? It opens doors. That's right. It it grants access. You have the ability to access whatever's behind the door, and you have the authority to open up and give entrance to others. You allow them to come in. You allow them to come 
come out. You're the one, if you've got the key, you're the one who has the authority uh, with that, that particular entryway. Well, I got some help from Matthew 23, 13, because what's not exactly clear here in verse 52 is what do these lawyers have the key to let people in and out of? It's, he, he says, you did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. Matthew 23, 13 makes it clear. This is about entering the kingdom. You have the authority. You've, you've got the authority the, this key of knowledge to let people into the kingdom and to guide people out of the kingdom. And he says, the problem is, you haven't entered yourselves and you haven't let other people enter. So the question then for us is, what is that knowledge that's the key to entering the kingdom or not entering the kingdom? And that's where it becomes plain for us. The way to enter the kingdom was to heed the message of the prophets, to believe the word of God, to hear the gospel that Jesus is preaching and the prophets before him, to, to heed God's message. But the problem is, is that they are misleaders. They're not leading people into the kingdom by leading them to obey the prophets, to obey the messengers. Instead, they're rejecting the messengers. They're relying on self-righteous works and leading others to do the same, so they're keeping people out of the kingdom. And so this flows right from what they were just doing by rejecting God's messengers. Instead of believing and repenting, self-righteous lawyers are hoping in their own ability. And the issue, if you look back through what he's been saying to the lawyers, the issue is they're putting all of their hope on the performance of their own hands but they're not acknowledging that their hands are covered in blood. They're not acknowledging that all of their attempts are futile and that they've never gotten close to succeeding. And so today we've seen seven condemnations upon hypocrites and the self-righteous. We saw Jesus give four condemnations to the hypocrites. He condemned them because they care more about external purity than internal purity because they have their priorities out of order, because they have sinful motives, and because their sins go unnoticed. And then he condemned the self-righteous because they demand from others what they excuse in themselves, because they persecute and kill God's messengers, and because they perpetuate unbelief. And so we started by saying what we're doing here is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. And so what do we do? Knowing that in a community like this, we're in danger of falling prey and allowing self-righteousness and hypocrisy to live in our hearts and to rule the way that we live. What do we do? I can tell you one thing. We're not stopping worshiping and praying and giving and going. We're not going to stop doing that. That's not the answer. But there are three things that I want us to look at here. For hypocrites... If you are a hypocrite, a non-Christian, if your hope of being right before God is your appearance, deceiving others and deceiving yourself, even maybe deceiving God if you could do it, you need to realize that God knows the condition of your heart. Who are you fooling? You're not fooling God. You might be fooling people, but you even know in your own heart that there's impurity greed and wickedness 
And so for the hypocrites, I say repent. As we were singing the, one of our songs earlier, Jesus coming out of the grave, just think, hypocrites who have these unclean graves as their hearts, full of dead man's bones and all sort of just, just deadness, Jesus went into a grave and defeated death and sin and all of that wickedness. And he, he didn't rot, but he killed death and he came out. He went into the grave of your wicked heart that he might cleanse it and purify it through his death on the cross. And now all hypocrites who trust in Jesus, the one who defeated death and sin, and he, he is the one who can cleanse you of all your impurity. He is the one who can make you clean from inside out. And so I say, if that's you, don't deny it anymore. Don't pretend any longer. Don't try to fool yourself or God. Trust in Jesus today. He's the one who defeated the grave that you might come out and live in purity with him. Second, if you're a self-righteous non-Christian today, in your self-righteousness, if you think that you can prove yourself innocent to God, if you're going to stand before God and start saying, I, I deserve to be in your kingdom for this reason, I deserve to get in for this reason, I deserve to get in for this reason, you have to know that's not going to work. There's one reason and one reason alone. If you're holding your righteousness, what you're doing in holding it is that you are refusing to accept the gift that God has given. God has given a gift, gifted righteousness, not earned or merited righteousness, gifted righteousness. And if you keep holding on to all of the, the things that you've achieved in your lifetime, then you're going to fail to grab hold of Jesus, the one who God sent to live the perfect life that you have failed to live. You can never do it. You can never even meet your own standard, let, an, let alone a holy God, and you know it. Grab hold of the one who did obey perfectly, and he obeyed perfectly in your place. And then he was cursed and condemned on a cross by a holy God, God pouring out all of the punishment you deserve for your sins that you might be totally forgiven, totally wiped clean. Trust in him and his perfect performance today so that you can be seen by God as a Christian. And so Christians, let me remind you of why you can rejoice. Why, how do we come to a passage like this? There's no rejoicing here. How do we come to a passage like this and walk away singing and walk away rejoicing? It's because this is a room, if you've been, if you've been a little offended and you're not a Christian in this room and you think, man, what a self-righteous bunch of hypocrites. There's no way they live like this. Here's the thing. That's who we once were. We were once hypocrites. We were once self-righteous. Yeah, maybe there's some remnants of that still that we're trying to slay, we're trying to kill. Yes, but that's not who we are fundamentally anymore. That's who we once were, but now we stand condemned no longer. A righteous man was condemned by God in our place that we can walk innocently. We're accepted before a holy God. This is what Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read this for us just because it's so, it's so good. Colossians chapter 1 says this, this is who Christians are before God. 
And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christian, do you believe that? Do you know that when you read this passage, you have every reason to rejoice because the scathing condemnation belongs to you no longer? God doesn't see you as self-righteous and hypocritical. If you're a Christian, he says blameless, righteous, innocent, above reproach. That's reason for rejoicing. And so now as Christians who have, who have been cleansed and forgiven by, by Jesus, him now being resurrected, he's given his Holy Spirit that, that he might live in our hearts. Now, someone's taken residence in that evil, wicked heart. It's now a good heart. It's now a clean heart. It wants to delight in good things. It wants to please God, not for a show, but to honor the one who saved us. We're fundamentally different than we used to be. And so with just one final encouragement to all of us, why should we obey this? I just want you to see, look back at Luke chapter 11. Look at how these Pharisees and these lawyers walked away. Don't do this. Don't be like them. Listen to this. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Don't be like them. Don't be looking at this message that I've preached and just be looking to catch some word and try to prove why you don't have to listen to it. Don't walk away like the Pharisees and the lawyers. Don't be self-righteous and hypocritical. Don't be like them because they walked away from here and they killed him. They rejected him. Instead, I want to encourage you to be like the people who heard Peter proclaim the gospel message. The same people, there's probably some of the same people standing here rejecting these words from Jesus, and they're standing here in Acts chapter 2 listening to Peter say, you killed the one that God sent, and God raised him from the dead. He's coming back to judge. You killed him. And how did they respond that time? What are we supposed to do? We're cut to the heart. What are we supposed to do? We want to obey. We want to be different. And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and he will give you the Holy Spirit. Don't harden your heart today. Christians, rejoice. Hypocrites and self-righteous, please, we beg you, repent. He is too good to not receive as such a precious gift. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice. We do rejoice because we were once hypocrites and self-righteous. We rejoice that that's who we used to be, but now we are so no longer. Father, thank you for making plain to us the gospel. For making plain to us that you were sending your son Jesus to take all of our pretending, to take all of our faking, to take all of our list-making and box-checking, to take all of that away and to offer us a free gift that we could be right with you and acceptable to you, reconciled to you, simply by believing and turning from our own ways and turning to you. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who stands condemned 
Lord, open their eyes and open their hearts and cause them to turn. And Father, I pray for Christians. Let them go away rejoicing. If there's any remaining sin that they've uncovered today, Lord, let them put it to death because it's not who they are any longer. Oh, Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for sending Jesus. We could have never earned it. We didn't make ourselves lovable to... um, twist your arm and and make you send him, but you sent him out of love and grace and mercy. Thank you that you are a, a, a loving God, a merciful and kind God who loves to forgive sinners. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We pray that our response would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.